0: Welcome to the podcast edition of the Stay at Home Festival from the Cosmic Shambles Network. Shambles producer Trent here. As you may have heard, we are doing the Stay at Home Festival during this uh, weird point in human history. Which is basically going to be live stream shows every day, sometimes twice a day, of chat and comedy and conversation and science QA and performance and music, all sorts of stuff. Uh, they'll be streaming live on the Cosmic Shambles website, cosmicshambles.com/slash stay at home, and also on our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash cosmic shambles. It will all be streamed live for free. Most of it will be up on catch up on demand on YouTube for free as well. But we would ask if you can uh, pop a tip in the tip jar uh, as you're watching or after you've watched uh, at CosmicShambles.com slash stay at home. We would greatly appreciate that. All the profits that we make uh, from people pledging and donating through this, uh, we're going to distribute to artists and performers and venues that have been hit hardest by losing all their income for the foreseeable future. So if you do have a spare pound or so, uh, drop that in the virtual tip jar on the website and that would be greatly appreciated a couple of people had asked if we would be putting these shows up as podcasts or audio as well so we've decided we are going to do that Uh, bear in mind obviously that when these uh go out they are video so there might be some bits that are less succinct in an audio format and since everyone is just streaming on their variable internet connections from their different homes all around the world The quality is obviously not going to be the same as when you're listening to Book Shambles, which is recorded in a studio, but we are all locked up. There's no shows to go to. There's no new TV or anything getting made. So we wanted to be able to put out something that we thought would be fun and joyful and uh, get it out there as soon as possible. So that's what this is. And this first uh, episode on the podcast is the Science Shambles Q&A we did on... Sunday the 21st with Robin Ince and Helen Chesky and Miranda Lowe and Brian Cox and some music from Matt Watson as well. Don't forget to go to cosmicchambles.com/slash stay at home uh, to tip to find out who's coming up on upcoming shows and all that other stuff. Anyway, here is the show.
1: Welcome to our special stay-at-home festival science stage from Cosmic Shambles. Um, Now, the great thing I should tell you right at the start, as uh, any of you uh, who may be paying attention on Twitter or Facebook, is that this is a tech run. And some of you who might either follow me or Brian Cox will know that in the last 20 minutes, Brian's been kind of mocking me because I don't know how to use technology. Anyway, suffice to say... He's the only one who can't get his technology to work. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna try and get hold of Brian about halfway through this show. Uh, He is on the the other end of something, some tin can and string thing. And uh, and then we're gonna try and get in contact. But uh, we are joined by uh, fantastic from University College London, Helen Chersky from the Natural History Museum, uh, Miranda Lowe, and they uh, we've got so many brilliant questions. Um, before we start the questions, what we thought we would do, by the way, the youngest person who sent a question, uh, two years and nine months. So we will definitely get to that question. I don't know the oldest person's question. Uh, Someone didn't send a question. They have sent a theory about why they believe the Big Bang is wrong. But I'm afraid I'm not going to be able to read out all 7,000 words of that. So we'll deal with that on on another episode. I'll just start off very briefly. I'm not a scientist, so I don't have anything great to show and tell. So the only thing I was going to show is my favourite music box. This uh, this was my grandmother's music box. This is my show and tell. And why is it so brilliant? It's a very simple, quite kind of cheap, music box but oh now can you name that tune is that not yeah. the ice cream van it can be used for an ice cream <laughs> van as well it can be used by child captures all manner of things from <laughs> <Yeah>. Jeff, <laughs> Genie, bang, bang. and what did the swiss invent the cuckoo clock. It's the uh, Harry Lime theme from the Third Man. That is all I was going to show and tell today. Um, let's start off with uh, It does look you. like
2: it needed a little rotating ballerina or it something did. on it. Yeah, You know, looking very bored. They always look so bored. I'm sure real ballerinas aren't.
1: I took the rotating ballerina off because it's my rotating ballerina. I don't want anyone else to see. Uh, yeah. No, I will probably. I, I'll work on that. The next show and tell will be the Take rotating ballerina. Um, Helen, you've gone through your archives. I mean, you, you've done an enormous amount of, uh, of of exploration and, and and events. What have you chosen today to show so, and tell?
2: So I have um, bookshelves which are overloaded and I choose to overload them even more by adding things like this to them. And, and it's these two things and I'm going to turn them around really slowly. Now, the important thing about these is that they started off as normal expanded polystyrene cups of the sort that have gone terribly out of fashion for very good reason. Um, But what oceanographers have a habit of doing is when you get an expanded polystyrene cup, you take it to sea, you draw all over the side of it, um, and then you put it in a net and you send it down to the bottom of the ocean on a measuring device that measures temperature and salinity and all kinds of things. And this is quite standard. So the ships, you know, they basically dangle something over the side on a gigantic bit of string, and the pressure in the depths of the ocean shrinks the expanded polystyrene so it's not expanded anymore and you get these lovely little cups here this is the let's have this this is a smaller one so this and you write on it so i've written on it southern ocean 2012 53 degrees south 30 degrees west and it's got a fish and an octopus that's my i'm not an artist that's my best (laughs) attempt of an octopus um and um this is a great fun and it's a really satisfying game i mean this one has been it's also got the depth on it it's been down to two thousand meters into the ocean and they're lovely little so we've all got them every oceanographer who's been to sea is there's always at some point someone goes bring your cups we'll put them in the net and send them all down um but it is a reminder how of how alien the deep ocean is that eat you don't actually have to go very deep but the pressure goes up so so much uh, which is why things like you know giant squid uh, when you bring them to the surface they quite often don't survive very well it's because they're used to being squished under pressure and then when you release the pressure bits of them explode sometimes which isn't you know, not very nice and um, yeah so i've got a little collection of these so i thought that that's my show and tell
1: Oh, that's interesting, actually, because Marnie, who is, I think, Marnie, you're eight years old. I think you're eight. Uh, um, I apologize if I've got that that uh, age wrong. But one of Marnie's questions was uh, almost the other way around. Why is it that, uh, you know, what happens to a fish if it goes too deep in the water? Does it get crushed? Uh, or is it not more often the the alternative, which is anything that rises too high?
2: So fish. it depends on the type of fish. Oh, so we'll do fish first and then whales, because a whale is not a fish, but um, it does do something very interesting. So most fish. So there are there are um, a group of fish that have a, um, a swim bladder which is an air filled little compartment inside them and um, as they rise up and down in the water column that air compartment basically can't withstand the pressure so that is likely to the amount of gas in it will uh, expand or you know you get more the fish can uh, Miranda's the biologist here she might correct <laughs> me Um you're
3: doing but, fine but
2: the so so the fish can, can fill it up if it needs to, but often when it's coming to the surface very quickly, the gas expands and that gas actually escapes out of the gills of the fish. And I remember years ago, there was a paper that I read and it was a very stuffy paper it was clearly written by someone who spent their time in a leather armchair thinking thoughts about the ocean and they wrote uh, bubbles in the ocean because obviously i study bubbles bubbles come from um methane seeps breaking waves and the belchings of fish and i looked at that and went what idiot is this in his leather armchair who has said the belchings of fish and two years later i was um diving off a off a reef and a big a fourth a, you know meter long tarpon which is a big fish swam past me belching out of its gills because it had come up it's got a swim bladder the gas had to escape so so there are fish like that where the amount of gas inside them actually changes as they go up and down and what the fish does is it uses that to keep its buoyancy right because fish in general most of the fish is heavier than water so that gas bubble acts as sort of a life jacket on the inside a little bit for some fish and so the fish can adjust the amount of gas in it to stay buoyant so when it comes up to the surface it has to let some gas go because otherwise it'll be too buoyant and it'll float up to the surface and get the bends and uh, the other thing i'll say is about whales which are super cool because a whale has lungs like ours very similar to ours uh, and obviously they breathe at the surface so they take in a deep breath but they don't actually hold it in their lungs the way we do when that when a whale goes down and dives down the oxygen is actually stored in its muscles and the reason for that is um its lungs are going to get crushed it's going to squeeze all the oxygen like the the pressure of the oxygen would go up and go out into the bloodstream and actually damage the whale so what the whale does is it shuts off the connection between its lungs and the rest of its body and when it's underwater it's breathing entirely from oxygen stored in its muscles uh, which is completely different to what you might imagine so i've forgotten the original question but there's lots of interesting things hopefully
1: marnie i think will have enjoyed that <laughs> when you were talking about that, it reminded me of someone once after an event we did coming up and saying i thought your introduction to helen chersky was extremely sexist I said sorry what when why you described her as a bubbly physicist would you introduce she Brian Cox as a bubbly physicist I said no I said she's a bubble physicist you went, oh I'm so sorry
2: <laughs> 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 but um, he does. I mean he does quite like his champagne Brian he, oh, he does yeah. have these bubbly physicist moments, right? Do yeah. <laughs> do know this.
1: <laughs> the um, Miranda, you are—I I mean, you, you work at the Natural History Museum. Thank I imagine you. you have access to those wonderful storerooms as well, which millions
3: are millions of specimens and creatures from under the sea, things that live on land. Yeah, it—it satisfies my curiosity. I'm the curious curator.
1: Did you have a, fa- I mean, when you first had access to that and you are kind of, you know, I'm not going to say running wild because obviously you're very, very careful with what you do and wear gloves, if any, but, you know, as wild as you can be as uh, as a curious curator, what was the thing you were most excited to uh, see?
3: Um, oh, gosh. i have fought for choice. Oh, when I first got my job, they took me down to what was called at the time dry story number one. So when I went in there, it was just an amazing. It literally was a cabinet of curiosities. Lots of taxidermy, you know, zebras, um, the giraffe stuff, giraffes. There were corals in cabinets. Um, you name it, it, was in it was in there basically. Um, but what I like about my own collection are the um, king crabs. So the deep ocean crabs um not quite um the japanese spider crab we've got one or two of those um around the museum well one was in the creepy crawley's gallery but within uh, my own personal collection we've got a lot of the king crabs so they're lithodes crabs and they have legs that can span up to you know six feet i mean really really amazing to see those deep sea as as helen could appreciate those deep sea creatures to see them up close and personal is the most amazing thing
2: and they really, f- so I was going to say that the, 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 I've been, sh- I've been lucky enough to go on a tour of the Natural History Museum stores. And the weird thing is that you open cupboards and the, the cupboard doors are all solid wood and you open them and they are these things and you don't know whether it's going to be a monkey or a shrimp. Well, that's it. That's the <laughs> diversity. And that, and that's the most
3: amazing thing. When I think I've seen it all, I just open a cupboard door and I think, oh my God, this is amazing. And I look around the store. And there's actually no one else in there but me. But now through the medium of Twitter, I can just share those really mm. amazing moments to everyone, like what we're doing now.
1: That's what I, I love. I've been lucky to go back to, like, there's the, the, the one at uh, Trinity College, Dublin. Oh, yes, uh, I've
3: been there as well
1: that's got those great things which are the bits that got lost so yeah unfortunately it's a brilliant giraffe skeleton but the head got lost in the post you know that kind of thing or uh, there's one in Cambridge where I was going around and they went I'll show you something about Charles Darwin he did not know how to pack eggs and the egg samples that he sent back he would he would pack them too tightly so go see that's another broken egg that's no good to us thank you Charles Darwin
2: his handwriting was rubbish. So I think, and again, Man yes. Miranda can collect me, in the Natural History Museum, they've got all these samples that came samples The Voyage so of the Eagle, but they think it's somebody else's handwriting because yeah, his handwriting was so
3: bad. wasn't <laughs> great. I mean, I look after Darwin's barnacles and, um, yeah, get samples of his handwriting. Um, uh, you know, miraculously, a lot of that has survived um, because he had that huge collection sent to Down House. So he was able to, you know, in the luxuries of his own front room. See, we're all doing this from our own front rooms now at the moment. He was able to just study the barnacle collection obsessively for eight years. So,
2: you know. We've all become Victorian but gentlemen scientists. We have!
3: So <laughs> <happy>. <laughs> I love sure like that.
1: <laughs> um, when I was studying, to, I, I did a show which had a load of stuff about Darwin. I talked to uh, the wonderful Steve Jones, who wrote Almost oh, Like yeah. it well Way and Others. And, and I said to Steve, I said, is there any Darwin I shouldn't read? And he said, don't reads books about barnacles, he became overly obsessed. (laughs) And I thought
3: (laughs) (laughs) but you know I benefit with that. Maybe I've become overly obsessed with them too, because I look after them and you know all his kind of like notes that he's written and 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 it's just an amazing thing to actually handle these things that he actually physically touched and was dissecting. It's the most amazing thing. (laughs) Ah, <laughs> almost like
1: a well yes <laughs> it is a fantastic book i really uh, steve jones is is is, is a, w- a wonderful writer miranda it's we like, haven't like, yet i like
2: oh, the sorry. idea sorry is that the the miranda is like the um the p- picture of dorian gray for barnacle obsession is that <laughs> robin and i every time we we might have a bit of barnacle obsession it actually just accumulates in miranda <laughs> yeah. yeah she yeah. has yeah. everyone she's it, accumulating it, it, all the Barnacle a hundred times more
1: <laughs> so your show and tell miranda is it barnacles is it shrimps is it a monkey
3: whoa close it's related to shrimps i hope everyone can see this so this is a woodlouse it's not a real one it's actually it's actually from a birthday cake Um, some years ago (laughs) as you do (laughs) you have a birthday cake that actually has the icing on top of the cake it's made out of your favorite animals and so one of my favorite things are woodlice which are related to crabs and lobsters and barnacles of course so crustaceans so this is an exact replica of a woodlice that has 14 legs So, um, scientifically, um, we class woodlice as isopods. So, that means equal feet. So, it has seven on one side of legs and seven on the other, and um, two antennae. And then at the back, I'm hoping everyone can see this. Uh, I'm going to point to it with the pencil there. Um, We have what we call the pleopods at the back. And um, that's where woodlice can do what we call drinking through their bottoms. Yes, like a straw. Does everybody remember capillary action? <laughs> so yes, that's what they can do. They actually spit, smell with their antennae. So you can see the antennae at the front here. Oh I pointing in the right. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, and they like to eat decomposing um, leaf litter. They can sense the different types of bacteria on the on the decomposition there. And also rotting wood. So that's why you usually find them. On a decaying log, or and because we're all sort of isolated at home at the moment. But if you you're lucky enough to have a back garden as well, you can go outside, look under your your, your logs or under your flower pots, and you can find these lovely things. So they like damp, um, wet areas, and um, they usually sort of scurry about in 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 the night. So they're nocturnal as well. But there you go. But this That's- is a bit of icing that I didn't eat. That's beautiful,
1: though, because uh, that's another reminder, which is, you know, going back to Darwin, his book about um, earthworms, which I used, I used to read out from on, on stage. It's such a beautiful book, you know, the formation of venture mold through the action of worms with observation on their habits. And and it's uh, if, it, you know, my favorite bit is where he I, I can't remember which of his sons he made uh, play the bassoon to an earthworm to see how they might react uh, to various different kind of, you know, auditory experience. Um but that great thing that you there talking about, you know, the, the the woodlouse is all of these things that we can very often think of as mundane. The earthworm, the woodlouse, those things that might just be, you know, dotted around a small garden in a park, whatever. As you just said, you know, there from the, the drinking from the bottom to the number of legs to all of that. It's still everything is fascinating.
3: It, it's really amazing. Never think woodlice are boring because they're about... Uh, 39 to 40 different species in the UK alone, and we have things that have different body forms. So they have things like clingers, rollers. Um, so most people might recognise woodlice that roll into a ball. So their their common name are pill bugs. So you'll see those. So what have we got? We've got the clingers, the runners, and the rollers. It sounds
2: like an episode like of seven of the dwarfs
4: <laughs>
3: <laughs>
2: and, and there was a so that the one so the you've, you've got, got there is quite large, right? Quite a horrifying size, if you don't oh, I know. Like, it's but in nine, history, it's nine
3: the, centimeters, but it, they're usually not that big. <laughs> but in history, there have been
2: crustaceans that are that big, right? And, oh. and much bigger.
3: Well, we have the um, the ocean or the sea the sea version of the woodlice, the sea slater. So, which is, is quite big actually. Um, so um, they, they're their cousins, um, Lygia oceanica. That's what we've got. Yeah but yeah that's
1: brilliant thank you so much now we're going to come back to both of you with the questions uh in a moment we're going to go over to uh, matt watson a wonderful singer-songwriter i've done various gigs with uh in the past who is going to sing because originally one of the reasons we're doing this was was we were all meant to be at the cutty sark today yeah. uh doing an event uh, about the oceans and then this is what we're trying to do instead and uh, i i hope you're watching i hope you enjoy it i hope it. I ho- hopefully we're going to ask some of the questions you've sent in as well um also just quickly mention we have on our page a kind of tip section that if you want to uh you know leave any money and what i am saying what we're trying to do is basically we're trying to raise money for people uh in a particularly kind of performing arts who having had all of their work removed for the next three months uh may well be struggling so it's not not to you know some of us are lucky and we have other ways in the performing arts that we're able to to, to make money and we're doing it doing okay but for some people playing the small clubs uh, whether they're musicians whether they're poets whether they're comedians whatever it might be that's that's all, all they have and it's going to hit them hard and we're also to try and give some money as well to some of the venues some of the small arts venues that uh, again may well have to um basically get, get get rid of those people who work for them and may well not arrive uh, again um so we are hoping i've i've just seen a little message on my screen by the way uh which says that brian might be having a little bit of trouble with his broadband so while there's trouble with his broadband why not let's go to a one-man band yes yes i segued look at that segue um this is totally unscripted uh please use me local radio i am available um we're gonna go for a song uh with the brilliant matt watson so ladies and gentlemen here he is here he is
4: hello there how are you doing this is called outside Where are they? way of
1: doing again thanks so much matt's going to be back uh shortly um we'll, we'll be talking to him again i've just spoken to brian we are still trying to work out I, I think it may well be a tech issue his side uh but we're still trying to get hold of him i might just give him a call and we'll put him over loudspeaker for some of the questions about uh black holes uh but i'm certain that uh helen and miranda will be able to deal with all of those uh questions um oh, oh, man I, I had so much fun i was uh The other day I was doing a a, a podcast with um, Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd and Ed asked me said what's your favorite thing that's the favorite been, thing that's kind of been observed astronomically in the last few years and of course it is you know getting that image of a black hole and they said what is a black hole and I started to explain the idea of density and gravity and you know when you just and of course I'm not a scientist so of course it was you know reasonably cack-handed and all over the shop but it, hopefully the you know the, underneath it all it was kind of you know it was comprehensible but just seeing someone's face when you start talking about that and they, they just because the universe is so big and some of it is so mighty and I'm terrified yeah, it was it was it was wonderful. <laughs> um, so I've got I'm going to rattle through these questions and I'll save some some of the uh, physics questions for uh, Brian. This is actually for both of you. I'll start off with you, with you Helen, and, and then I'll come to you. This is from uh, Rory, who's four years old, and uh, he wants to know, do you think we will ever live on the moon?
2: I think that uh we in general as a whole civilization will not. Um, So I tend to be, I always sound slightly grumpy about this because everyone else is like, yes, we're going to go to the moon. And I quite like earth. Like earth is our life support system in space. It's our, you know, it carries us around. It's got everything we need. And I, I would like us to spend a bit more time looking after this one. So living on the moon, you know, is technically possible. Uh, it's expensive, there might be some advantages, but fundamentally, what if you actually look at the Apollo missions, people went to the moon and they looked back at Earth. And I still think for all the adventure of Apollo and all the amazing technological human achievement to go to the moon, the thing that happened was that people looked back at Earth. So I am not convinced that anyone is really going to want to want to live on the moon, um, unless they're doing really, really well at this whole social isolate. Maybe what this is, is just a test for for the first moon astronaut if you're really good at this then you can go to the moon but i honestly think you go to the moon and what you see is how beautiful our own planet is so maybe you could but i honestly don't think you'd want to
1: I think that's a good, uh, when uh, we had uh, Rusty Schweikart on, uh, because Apollo astronaut, who uh, when he was on the Infinite Monkey Cage, um, when we asked him, you know, what was the most important thing from the Apollo missions, he said exactly that. He said the most important thing was not a human being standing on the moon. The most important thing was probably that image, I think taken by Apollo 8, as far as I remember, Earthrise. That, Bill that, Anders, yeah, yeah, Christmas Eve,
2: 1969, was it? No, nine, yeah, so, sometime, no, 1968. 1968, yeah. Yeah, um, uh, but... Yeah, but it, but it, it's it's hard for us to appreciate now how, what a big world, I mean, all of the generations of humans that have lived on this planet, and the globes, people had globes in their living rooms, you know, posh people, and they were all deduction, they were all maths had, you know, said, oh, it must look like this, because the measurements do this. And then you go out and you look back, and it did look like this. And that, that's a mind blowing change in your, literally your worldview. And I think it's hard to underestimate that now.
1: Miranda, we had a question which I think kind of follows up for that. Just talking about the idea of living on the moon. uh, We uh, had—I've—I've lost her name now, but she wanted to know. I know she was ten years old. She wanted to know how uh, long and how deep could people live in? You know, how deep can you go into the ocean? Was her and live for any reasonable amount of time? So, if you were actually (laughs) able to have, so, so, where could humans comfortably live inside? Well, I say comfortably, but survive within a.
3: I I think Helen's got more experience about that with the the deeper depth of taking submersibles down there. I mean, um, gosh, we've got so many animals that have adapted to actually live in the, the deep dark ocean. I mean, our technical equipment, divers can only go down so far and and when we're doing deep ocean research we're not actually diving down there it's it's now you know it's equipment and equipment is getting better now to to go down there doing a lot of filming um even if you're sampling from the deep ocean and and bringing up certain animals to to the surface um unfortunately they're they're not likely to survive i mean helen what what, what do you think what's the i uh, i really well technology is moving on but i really couldn't see um you know in terms of
2: no, people have people have tried. I mean, the submersibles still do go down. They make yeah. a lot of dives still. And actually, I I interviewed um someone a, a scientist in Seattle recently who's done a lot of dives, and she said time passes so quickly because mm-hmm. even though it, it looks like the deep ocean, you know, there's not much there. There's so much to look at, and there's mountains and valleys and all this stuff. Yeah, all the and she said time passes very quickly. So you so if you put people in that kind of bubble, like Alvin, that's the the most famous submersible. That is. Yeah. Um, you, you can put people down there and you can live down there. But again, the question is, do you want to stay down there? And people have done this experiment. So there have been attempts at living undersea for long periods of time. Even now, I think off Florida, there are underwater labs where um, you can go and live in that lab and then you can come out and dive. And the, the reason for doing that is that you as you go underwater, you breathe you because your lungs, if you don't want your lungs to collapse, you need to give your lungs a chance to fight back against all the pressure I was talking about earlier. So you have to to breathe gas at a higher pressure. And that means that you're breathing more gas because you have to put more in in order to create that pressure. And that means that you get extra nitrogen in your blood. And that doesn't do you any harm as long as you don't increase or decrease the level really quickly, especially decreasing it. So if you go and live in one of these undersea habitats and you're already at 300 meters or whatever it is, uh, probably not that deep you can um, go out and dive and come back in and go out again without having to do all the stages of letting your body get used to changing nitrogen levels um, so people have tried doing things like that and it is a it is a way of working and it's used for example for underwater archaeology even because if you're right next to a site you don't want it to take an hour and a half for your divers to get down to the archaeological site an hour and a half to get back up so you you let them live down there in a little bubble so you can live underwater but it does take a lot of effort um, and it's generally better as Miranda says if you're doing large surveys better to send the robots for the really deep depths
3: yeah because there, there is oh. this, you know, for divers, there's a lot of physical you know stress on on the body and so you do have to each time you're going um, diving you have to be physically fit and so over time in terms of going out of that little bubble it's going to take its toll on us as humans. So, um, yeah, I, I don't think it will happen. A lot of the, the deep sea animals that live deep in the ocean um, also cope by, um, you know, having this, um, what we call gigantism. So uh, Helen actually, um I was talking to you earlier on when you were um alluding to a, a deeper woodlouse in the ocean and I mentioned the Lygia, um, but the, the deepest one is um Bathynomus giganticus, so a massive deep sea woodlouse that can be um, you know, as uh, well the ones that I've got in the collection, they're about um, you know, 30. Centimeters long, if not more, and and they are huge, um, and you know, and so that is an animal that it has that kind of like um, body structure coping mechanism that it's so big. Um, a lot of the deep ocean, like Japanese spider crabs, have really long limbs. The deeper you go in the ocean, that you need more capacity for for uh, oxygen, and they have so they're, they're known also as extremophiles that are able to live, you know, um, and, and so deep and cope with those kind of pressures but also it's darker as you go deeper into the ocean as well so the light intensity is less and so a lot of these um, animals also adapt in the way that they will have either larger eyes such as bathynomas or longer um, sensory organs, antennae or the legs um, to help them feel and sense things um, in, in the dark essentially.
2: Because, of course, that's the other reason you might want to live in the ocean is that water doesn't travel very, light doesn't travel very far. So what you need is to be able to see in sound because that's the way information really travels across the ocean in sound. If you want to find out something, use sonar. Uh, And so I think humans might be a lot more interested in the ocean if they could see and sound the way that a dolphin does. And we we have got the technology to do that. You can, there are divers that have special, they have a sonar on their chest that's looking out and goggles that show them the sonar image. It does exist. But I think a bit more of that might make it a bit more useful for humans to a bit more interesting for humans to live underwater.
1: Right. Well, we move to the next question, because you just mentioned dolphins and Blythe, who uh, is from just outside Sydney in Australia. uh, She's been reading about the work of John C. Lilly. John C. Lilly. So this is for you, Miranda. Some people will know uh, John C. Lilly became, uh, as, as well as becoming, uh, reasonably obsessed with the possibility that hallucinogens were going to be something that was going to be tremendously important in our uh, evolution as, as uh, human beings. Uh, he became fascinated in the idea that we might be able to communicate with dolphins. And Blythe wondered, you know, what do you feel about the abilities, uh, the possible abilities for us to be able to? communicate with other intelligent species on this
3: planet wow that's a big question but but they are you know from what i know my generalist knowledge and um very um clever animals and communicative animals as well and helen working on 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 whales as well or whale poo anyway as well um <laughs> <laughs>
2: there's, there's a reason for that i don't work on whale poo, but i have the <laughs> I, to talk about
3: yeah, it yeah to talk <laughs> about it i know i know i'm just linking into the 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 larger animals there of oh, oh, that kind of um uh, communication under the ocean and that that is a link because we were talking about you know humans living in the deep dark oceans there how we would communicate and um, sorry, Robin, I've absolutely forgotten what the trade of your question was. Do I think that we can communicate uh, in that way? What was it? I well, was, what just next? so what, what, what <laughs> do you have any
1: hopes, or is it a hiding place? Because Carl Sagan, of course, talked about the fact that sometimes we, we say, oh, we're going to try and communicate should we manage to find extraterrestrial uh, existence, and yet we're unable to actually communicate with the intelligent life that is on our planet. Yeah. So, if something which has developed in an entirely different kind of environment? Could we? we, Well,
3: it it is a really big question. I think there is, well, there's potential then there's a lot of speculation around it. I mean, it's a bit like we were talking about, well, could we all go to the moon and and live there on on other planets as well? I I think um, that is Possible, but from my personal perspective, I, I think we've got a long time coming for that kind of thing, yeah.
2: The, um, use, an interesting analogy might be dogs, right? Because people... the You can communicate with a dolphin. You know, dolphins recognise they have a call. They that have other their own recognize. specific
3: calls, yes, and, um, and, and, and the same with dogs. It, it's also making me think of... Um, I can't remember what it's actually called, but um, do you know that device that only the um young people can hear the if dog whistle. It's that, really yeah that's that, that yeah. dog whistle effect and and that's linked to ages. maybe well. the
2: dogs are talking to the
3: dolphins that's what's wow. going on yeah that that, it that can't
1: us. <laughs> now that there, there is one of the chapters that douglas adams never got round to yeah. so uh this is uh we're going to try and read many questions okay. um now this one i th- helen you might know but I, I think you probably will be okay on this but uh it's not your necessarily your it's physics but not necessarily the what where you concentrate poly age, first of all she says hello hello polly i hope you're um, still watching um she would like to know how far away is the nearest black hole and what might be on the other side of one which is always an intriguing what Ooh. people
2: you are right that i this is not quite i do the physics of uh, the. the wrong that is a question for chris chris lintott <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know the statistics sorry um no so... I think, I think it's a lot of them. I mean, that my, my impression is certainly that it's a lot of them because that's where you notice the difference between that was one of the, the sources of the question about dark matter, right? Cause the speed at which galaxies are rotating around can't be accounted for by the black hole in the middle, which uh, that may be not related, but the, the point is you could measure the mass at the middle and it didn't account for all the gravity that seemed to be, um, you know, in there. So, so I don't know is the answer to that question. I, Um, What's on the other side of one? So black holes. So this is where you get into, you know, um, general relativity, which all gets a bit sort of messes with your head quite a lot. Um, But but black holes, mass and time sort of uh, and space interact with each other. That's what a black hole does. So so it's actually the, the black hole sits within space, but it's also changing the space around it. So on the other side of a black hole, it is just more space. There's nothing different if you go around the back of it, but you can't go through the black hole because the reason they're called black is that they have an event horizon, which means that if you get too close to a black hole, you basically can't come out. So if you do want to go around the, black, around the back of a black hole, you have to go the long way round in order you're not you can't go through. There's no sort of bypass through the center of a black hole. But it's space in the same way that uh, we see here. So one of the things we do see about space is that as it's expanding, um, it's it's expanding equally in all directions. Um, So so it's not like there's an other you you don't get closer to the edge if you go to the other side of a black Mm -hmm. hole. I don't know if that helps or not
1: so I suppose is it also because the black hole sometimes I think it was was it John Wheeler who originally coined it I, I can't be so should, but is the fact that the hole is really the top bit that you fall into it's not the bit at the the bottom the bottom is something of incredible density from which nothing can escape it's not as if you then go whoa there's a hole and I've suddenly I've just met the time bandits this is fantastic yeah. you know it's not <laughs> is, is that because I mean I think that's why a lot of people would imagine but I might be wrong about that as well after all it, I'm an it's, arts graduate it's, it's
2: not like a well uh, but mm. the thing is that as you, as you got I mean su- assuming you could survive crossing the event horizon, your personal I mean your, if you had a physical body at this point it would be very spaghettified. Mm-hmm. but assuming that wasn't the case uh, all you would notice is is to an outsider it would look like time was slowing down for you. so your perception of time changes as you get into a black hole. so so if you were inside one what you might not necessarily know that but you you wouldn't be able to come out again. But well, then the time thing, will be passing so slowly that you wouldn't, you might not appreciate
1: yeah. that. Well, the good thing is this time next week we've got uh, Brian Green on as well <laughs> as Brian Cox. So uh, the, we, we'll go through um, you know, more about black holes uh, there. Uh, I've got one more question, then we'll go back to Matt, and then we're going to try one more time to get hold of uh, Brian. This is it's another one from Marnie, actually. And hello again, Marnie. And uh, this is about narwhals and their big tusks. And she wants oh. to know, she's seven years old, are they likely to sometimes accidentally spear other fish as they go through the
3: sea? I think that's a curious question that I might i have never thought of also myself, but yeah. Uh,
2: they're a tooth. So the tusk yeah, of a narwhal is actually a tooth. And there, you do get occasional mm-hmm. narwhals where they've got both. So it's the left. I think it's the left one. So they've got this tooth yeah. that sticks out. But they could have they could have both. And so I have seen narwhal skeletons where this narwhal went through life with two of them, which is even more inconvenient. And especially for not spearing your friends uh, or your enemies, maybe it's got its uses, but they are quite good. I think they have sensing um, that they have sensing capabilities, the tusks. So it's not really clear why they have them. I think it's thought that they're, a, you know, fighting sort of display. It's a it's a sexual dominance thing, basically. You know, make all the jokes you want. Um, but but it tends to be the males that have them more than the females, I think. Isn't it, Helen, it's a left-handed, predominantly a
3: left-handed... Uh, whirl well on it or yeah well, on, twist. on the yeah on the twist. twist yeah
2: they go yeah. and it, it is a left-handed one it's a bit mm. like maybe it's a bit like that question about you know um dna molecules uh, you know there's this thing called chirality in chemistry and mm. the the molecules of life all twist the same way and it's not quite as strict with the novels but they yeah. do all twist to the left what's that robin there's a poem about toothbrushes or what is it that, is it you no know, violets or something There's like the 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 honeysuckle to the left and the something to the right is an old song. Ooh. I should about know about that. that. I'm
1: not meant to know about black holes, but I meant to know about uh, poems about violets and toothbrushes. Comic- That's Comic one history. of my areas.
2: That is... Um, like that. I'll, I'm gonna. I'll look it up while Matt's playing his song. Right. Well, we will
1: go over to uh, to, to Matt again. We have loads. Of, we 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 almost got Brian on the line, so we, we we're getting closer. I should also mention that uh, hopefully all of those. Uh, look, this is still a tech run. We're kind of you know a tech thing that we're going through at the moment to try and work out all these things. And uh, I think this one is happening on Brian's side rather than on our side. And um, Brian should be with us on Tuesday as well. Uh, so uh, any questions? There's lots of questions that uh, I I won't ask, which I'll save for him on Tuesday at 10am. On Monday we've got Mark Gatiss joining us and uh, also as well as Mark Gatiss we have George Egg doing some very strange cooking, possibly with trouser presses amongst other things, and Grace Petrie uh, who will be singing as well. Just a reminder, uh, the tip jar that we basically, the virtual tip jar at the bottom is uh, to try and make money for people who uh, um, performers etc who are going to be really up against it because they have no work over the next three months and also hopefully try and support some of the art centres and venues that may well otherwise go under and the people Work for them to make sure they've got money as well. Um so thank you very much if you have a chance to do that. Uh we are now going to go back to Matt and then we might have Brian with us afterwards. Otherwise, in fact, we might also later on try and record something that we'll put up uh with Brian so we might be able to do something that isn't uh live. But let's go back now to Matt Watson. Hello, oh, okay,
4: This cool grounded. You're my.
1: go and check uh math if you're still there hopefully can Absolutely. i just check uh website um where people can find out about your because obviously you your all your gigs cancelled at the moment as well and, yeah. and a lot of your work is touring with people as well as playing yeah. your own stuff um where can people find out how to get your songs and stay in contact okay. with what you're doing so, um
5: bandcamp.com matt watson music
4: and also www.mattwatsonmusic.co.uk that's my website and i've got everything on there links to all my social media and everything else so
1: Thank you very Appreciate much. It. Thanks for having me. And uh, we'll having see you. And uh, we'll see Matt uh, back again and uh, not today possibly in fact because uh, he's only prepared two songs so they will be a little bit out of uh, nowhere there but we will hopefully see him again and uh, well we definitely will and uh, Matt also I should mention Bandcamp, I think they're still doing it but if you uh, buy music off Bandcamp as far as I know Bandcamp are currently not taking any percentage it's going entirely to the artists and Bandcamp has a lot of artists who again uh, only they're touring small gigs, they're doing small places and there's sales of their music are kind of the thing that keeps them afloat so if you get a chance have a look there find out about the music that's going on right we're going to rattle through we have we have some glimmer possibility that we're going to get through to uh brian about five minutes ago we had some some hope um so right let's first of all so we've got these are from uh, oliver's daughter alex and uh her questions we have quite a few first of all this is an interesting one why are slugs slimy who wants to take that one?
3: Oh gosh <laughs> i know a man who can <laughs> Slugs are slimy. Um, well, you know, that, that is part of, well, they're, they're invertebrates, animals without backbones. They're, they're generally, um, well, they they don't have a shell like like the snails do. So, therefore, there's not that much protection in terms of stopping them from um, dehydrating. So, that um, mucus is, is a layer that allows the body to keep moist, but also it helps them to... Um, Transfer across um, rough surfaces um, on land, and um, also it's quite um, oh there's um, been some research recently of how strong um, and kind of slime that they produce is in terms of us um, another animal. I'm referring back to my barnacles as well because the reason why they um, the encrusting barnacles stick um, so well onto rock. Uh, stones on the shore and things like that it's because they also produce um or secrete a cement like um sticky substance that allows them to uh you know adhere to the rocks for um you know literally forever
2: and the slugs their slime helps them move so it has this really interesting property, which this really is interesting th- property, which is that it's thick and gloopy until you shove on it really hard and then it becomes Thinny. temporarily much um thinner, so less viscous. And so what that means is that by controlling where it's shoving because uh, you know how does the slug move right it's just got one foot it's stuck to the surface yeah. how does it go anywhere and the way it does it is by pushing with different strengths in different places it effectively slides it slides itself along where it's pushing fastest but g- anchors itself in the bits where it's viscous and then it, it moves so it changes the viscosity of its mucus Fine. to enable it to effectively walk across the surface all on one foot so slug slime is really interesting
1: that's cool the um also alex she wanted to know uh, this one's for you miranda what's the biggest fish in the ocean it doesn't have to be an individual one i think just generally oh, a species no. as opposed to we've
3: got we've got basking sharks that they're, they're really big um, flying fish rays um, all, all of those are, are pretty big. And As Helen said, well, we know that the whale is the biggest in the ocean, but it's not actually, it's not actually a fish. Um, but considered under the royal fishes, though, whales are. I <laughs>
2: did look, up, I did look up the largest historical fish. The largest fish we oh. ever know has lived on Earth, oh, uh, and it lived in England. <laughs> it turns out. And I'm, you can probably say the name, Miranda. You seem to be really good at Latin names. But it's Let's something try. like Sixth, this. Um, But it was around 21 to 27 metres long, this thing, lived in the Jurassic era. Uh, but I can't say it. <laughs> I
3: need your I need your Latin skills. Oh oh gosh, I have to look at the spelling though, because I'm not familiar with that one. Oh, please anyway.
1: that, that bit of not pronouncing. When we did recently, we did a monkey cage about uh, quantum mechanics, and uh, we were having it signed. We were well. having it signed as well uh, for you know people with hearing impairments etc. And uh, basically, we gave them the worst gig that they would have to sign, because of course trying to sign a lot of terminology from quantum mechanics. It's just it's not been dealt with (laughs) as yet. This is an interesting question from Evan, who is uh, eight from Plymouth. Hello, Evan, if if you're if you're watching. Um, What color is the sun? Now, I think this is interesting because, of course, the idea is with color, as we know, is kind of a it's a secondary property. It's something which is down to our perception and other creatures' perception of what they might consider the colour to be. But I wondered if either of you have any take in terms of what you would think of it actually, if if you were able to observe it, you know, full on. Don't don't go and stare at it now. But it's uh, what do you think you you would see?
2: So it actually depends on where you're looking from. So there is a difference. So colour, as you say, is perception. We can measure the wavelength of light. And that is a physical thing that you can measure. And then there's the thing that our brains interpret. But if you look at this, if you look at our sun outside our atmosphere, it looks like any other star to us. It would look white, uh, obviously, without looking straight at it. The reason the sun looks yellow to us is that we tend to see it low on the horizon when it's, you know, that's when it's dim enough for us to look at. And and um we're seeing it the the some of the light that comes from it is scattered away as it comes through the atmosphere and what's left tends to be the redder colors which is why the sun gets redder and redder as it gets towards the horizon so although we think of the sun as yellow first of all if you went outside our atmosphere it definitely isn't yellow it, it's white like any other star and that's because of its temperature it's effectively white hot um but then When we can look at it, it looks yellower and yellower as it gets dim enough for us to look at until it gets close to the horizon uh, where it's red, because all the blue light is scattered sideways by the atmosphere, more likely to go straight through. So so the sun itself doesn't have a colour, but our atmosphere gives it a colour.
1: Uh, question for you, Miranda, for, in fact, for both of you. This is from uh, Keith, who's from Liverpool, but is currently in Cairns in Australia, because that's where he has to stay for the time being. Um, hello, Keith. This is. Uh, he would like to know, would any of you now, or as your younger selves, I presume, that's for me, consider, Oops, I presume that's for me, consider going into stasis-style sleep for a deep space voyage after the discovery of a new exoplanet that was habitable? Ooh. So
3: it's an interesting <laughs> Maybe as my younger self, um, because what I know at the moment, I you know what? As my younger self, I probably would be more willing to take risks because that seems as a risk in my older self to me. So yes, I might have done it in my younger self. Yeah.
1: Mm. Now you, uh, <laughs> Helen, you do go off on on these adventures sometimes with a certain amount of kind of you know icy desolation as some some would imagine. And uh, how how would you feel about uh, the deep space deep sleep?
2: Well, I've never yet gone into stasis um, yet. Uh, I think that I would I like this planet so much that at this point I, I might stay because, of course, the implication is that you can't come back. That's that. Yeah. The, the way the physics of this works mm-hmm. is that if you go into stasis for a time period and then you have to deal with the travel to another planet, you can never come back. So so there's a really it's not a question of whether you go on an adventure. It's if it's a question of whether you would sacrifice the rest of your life in order to do it. And I think if I was towards the end of my life, I might. But at this point, I wouldn't. But I should say, so there's this question about going to Mars. And the problem with going to Mars is that there's huge amounts of one of the problems, huge amounts of cosmic radiation will basically give you terminal cancer after you've been there for a very short period of time. And the astronomer royal Martin Rees, who is a brilliant and very lovely scientist, who is just a, an amazing person. We did this whole thing for a program I did once about um He he was talking about how much he wanted to make a one-way trip to Mars. And I had just done a piece on all this radiation that would give you terminal cancer. And he came up to me, the astronomer all came up to me afterwards and tapped me on the shoulder and said, is it really true? Are you going to have terminal cancer by the time you get there? And to my shame, I said, yes. And I wish I hadn't because it felt like such an awful thing to do because he really wanted to go. So, yeah, yeah, there were a few practical problems on the way. So you
3: do that, Helen, at the end of your life, whereas I would do this uh, uh, at the beginning. beginning. Maybe yeah. Yeah.
2: I don't know. Yeah.
5: Well, yeah.
3: Who you
2: knows? We haven't been faced with the know. question yeah. yet. Let's look after <laughs> this planet. That's what that's I keep, exactly. that's, if you want alien world If you want alien worlds, go to the bottom of the ocean. Yeah. I keep saying this. If you want exoplanets and alien life, go and meet an octopus. And. I think that is so fascinating all by itself that you don't need alien life in other places for quite a lot until you've really discovered the ocean, all of it. Yeah, yeah. Then you can worry about exoplanets.
1: Yeah. Right, we'll get through. Sorry, the um, Miranda. Here's another, This from Carl.
3: Um, along hydrothermal vents, so basically volcanoes under the sea that give off a lot of um, hot, um, sulphurous, toxic. Well, it would be toxic to us, um, and water. And um, and so these crabs have adapted so we have the yeti crab which i think was a new species of yeti crab was discovered in 2004 2005 i could be corrected by twitter um, and we also have the hoft so the yeti crab because um, its first claws um, or near its pincers those are parts of its body so in relation it would be our arms they're all really hairy and um and then um we've got the second species that was found uh, was nicknamed the hoft And after um, those of us that remembered Baywatch, um, David Hasselhoff and the hairy chest. So they have a hairy abdomen or tummy. And on those hairs, um, they have um, chemosynthetic bacteria that can actually uh utilize um the sulfur that is given off a lot, um, from living alongside these hydrothermal vents, so I think these um, and there's a third species that has just been discovered as well as those and those are really amazing those kind of adaptations to live alongside something so hot and 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 toxic in the deep ocean and and the hydrothermal vents themselves were only discovered in the 1970s i say only uh, i know <laughs> time's moving on but you know it's relatively recent time that's.
1: I've got one more question, uh, which is uh, for both of you. This is from I had this. Uh, I
5: think it's Averia. Or
2: have we Averian? got Brian now? Is that really? We a may Brian? well have
1: Brian. <laughs> we may well have Brian as well.
5: Uh, I think it is, but only on the phone.
1: phone. So uh, uh, oh, okay, okay. And A, and qu- and a couple, quick of couple of questions with Brian, with Brian, as, Brian as well. In fact, well. Brian, this Brian, is your first, first question. question. Averia, who's, who's two years and, two years years and nine months and nine old, months would like to know why do we need to eat all our dinner?
5: <laughs> that's a, that's a medical question. question. That's that's a a question. question. <laughs> well, then the other one from <laughs> well, a very two years, nine months old, years, old is, years, and nine is, months it, is and, and this a, is a great, this is a great future,
1: beautiful a, thing again to see that wonderful imagination at an early age. Why don't all the stars
5: fall down? <laughs> <laughs> it's, I mean, it's a great question. Um, I, I could give a long, long as how old is the. How old well, was the person who asked the question? She's uh, Two years,
1: nine months. So I, I think you might yeah, you know, there is going to be a problem in terms of some of the equations you're going to use. And I mean, there is for me and I'm 51 years old. But uh, but just generally, I think that's an interesting thing. What Everything does seem, even though it's moving at the same time as it moves, it seems to us to stay in place. And that for some people can seem like a counter-instinctual idea.
5: Yeah, I mean, it, there's a very famous quote, actually, and I can't remember who it's from, but it it's along the lines of it. It's about Newton, and it says that it took a genius to realise that the moon is falling when any idiot can see it standing still. <laughs> right? So the, the point is, yes, um, the, the moon, for example, which is the closest object you can see in the sky to us, is indeed falling towards the Earth. But it's falling and missing because it's also moving in a in a, in a different direction, what you might call a transverse direction. In other words, it's in orbit. And it's the same for the stars in the galaxy. So... Um, in a in a very real sense, uh, the, the stars are falling inwards uh, towards the center of the galaxy in the same way that the moon's falling towards the Earth. But they're also moving in, the, in a different direction. And so they're all falling and missing. I mean, that's in a sense what an orbit is. And you could extend that to the galaxies. So um, nearby galaxies uh, are gravitationally attracted to each other. So, for example, the Andromeda galaxy, is falling towards the Milky Way now, and the Milky Way is falling towards the Andromeda galaxy, and they're going to interact and collide in, um, I think, some billion years' time. Um, the, the very distant galaxies, this is why it's a great question, the very distant galaxies are actually not too distant, but more distant than Andromeda, and more distant than the ones in what's called our local group that are gravitationally bound together, then they are... Re- Proceeding from us, and that's because of the expansion of the universe itself, which overcomes that gravitational pull between the galaxies if they're far enough away. So it's a brilliant question, um, and it's, it shows great insight, because you're thinking about what gravity is. Um, Dylan, Dylan has a question. You mentioned galaxies. Uh, Dylan wanted to know, how many galaxies are there that we are aware of? Uh, uh, the number is something like two gig give or take. And that's obviously an estimate because we haven't counted them all. But we've done very, very careful surveys of the nearby universe, something called the Sloan Digital Sky Survey. And so uh, we know how big the part of the universe we can see is. And it's about just over 90 billion light years across. So that's the furthest we can look in every direction, just over 40, something like 40 to 41 and a half billion light years in every direction that we can see and so we know the volume of the observable universe and we know the the uh, the, the distribution the kind of density of galaxies in the local universe so you can you can estimate um and it's, it's something like it was less actually but we know how much matter there is in there and then we i think that it, it used to be a few hundreds of billions. And it changed because we realized that there are quite a lot of smaller so-called dwarf galaxies. So you count all those, you get a number well over a trillion. Brilliant. And there's one more, uh, and and then then, uh, I'll open up again. But this is from
1: Harris, who's six years old. Sorry, I'm doing all the questions that I would have done. uh, We would have mixed it up a little bit more, so I apologize. Apologise for the fact yep. that we can't see, um, but uh, um, six-year-old Harris wants to know what are the rings of Saturn made of? And I always love these questions. Of course, one of the beautiful things is—is uh, is it still correct in also saying we don't, as yet, understand why the rings of Saturn are what? Wh- why they behave as they do? Is that
5: still right, Brian, or have, have we moved yeah. on with that? Yes, yeah. so, uh, water ice. Um, but one of the great mysteries is that they're very clean and shiny, which you can see if you look at it through a small telescope, you can see them. You know, they're, they're, they're so, so bright, even though Saturn's so far away. And the universe, uh, well, the solar system is full of dust. So the, the the solar system is a place where if you leave things lying around in the solar system, they get dirty because there's a lot of dust in there. So it's, it, it has been and still continues to be a... a unresolved question, uh, why are the rings so bright? Um, I think the preferred answer at the moment is that they are young and so they haven't been around that long. So we think that likely in the the time of the dinosaurs, certainly the early dinosaurs, if they'd have had telescopes and they may well not have seen the planet with rings. So uh, the, the most as far as I'm aware, the most likely explanation now is that a moon was deflected inwards towards the planet, an icy moon, and broke up uh, because of the gravitational forces, the so-called tidal forces, when you get a moon very close to a planet, and so broke up, and then the fragments of that moon became distributed around the planet relatively recently, uh, and I'm talking about perhaps tens of millions of years, so not tremendously long time periods, and that's an explanation for why they're very shiny another another explanation which which used to be favored I don't think is now is just that you get a lot of collisions in the rings between the crystals and so the they're self- cleaning in a sense because the icy fragments bump into each other and shear off uh, you know, revealing their reflective faces. but I think the the, the best explanation probably is that they're young And it's quite a nice explanation because it means that you know we are in a very fortunate era. Uh, probably only tens of millions of years long when we can see those beautiful rings. I love the idea of I love the idea of, of a telescope. I, <laughs> I hope you've got one in dry store Number One at the
1: Naturalist Museum, Miranda. I hope because it's very specific design for the T Rex, isn't it? To make it, it, is, uh, it is workable. Indeed.
3: Yeah, 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 yeah. You'd have to come and investigate my cabinet for curiosities and find that and
2: But you do get lenses in Trilobite eyes, right? There are you fossils do. where you do actually have lenses in their eyes that you could presumably turn into a telescope if you really wanted. I mean, the trilobites might not have done it, <laughs> but the crystals are there.
1: Well, while we're on, on kind of uh, uh, life generally, there there are many complex organisms. This is from Steve Zara. Many complex organisms that live close to volcanic vents, worms, crabs, mollusks, et cetera. What is the hottest temperature that these complex organisms can live in? Now, has anyone uh, like to, to take that? Oh. Brian, it's the kind of place you go
5: to all the time, isn't it? All those, you know, vents. I do love hanging around the vent. I did get to go. Has anyone else ever visited one? I got down, got to go in Alvin down to the, uh, the oh, in the uh, oh, just on the <laughs> I haven't
2: been, haven't been in Alvin. But part of the reason it's a really difficult question to answer is that what's ha- the reason there's life at those vents is that a temperature gradient. So te- the, the water that is coming out of the vent could be 400 degrees. Mm. Uh, the pressure is what keeps it liquid. And the reason that it's such a fertile place for life and the reason it's so hard to study is that you, you can go from 400 degrees to perhaps 10 degrees over a few centimetres. So so the organisms that live there, quite a lot of the ones that are deep inside basically have one side that is on the hot. It's like having your back to the fire. And so one of the interesting things is actually, I think, less about the temperature itself. I don't know. I don't know the actual number, Um, but it's, it's the ability to survive that tremendous temperature gradient across their body and not survive. But that's the reason it's also difficult to measure the actual temperature they live at, because where exactly in the gradient were they where it's like a super super steep hill if you go a little bit to the left you go up quite a lot um so so i don't know the answer but i, I do think that the temperature gradient is much more of a puzzle in some senses than the temperature itself
1: the uh, this is uh, from Frey, who's age 15 and from his uh, uh, or her brother age six my little brother wants to know what started gravity and I would quite like to know where gamma radiation comes from. So it's a double whammy there. Uh the idea of, of, of gravity starts at, so so uh, where does that I be? mean because that is the the incredible thing that Brian Green's book, as I mentioned, Brian Green will be on, on next week in his new book, it's a very beautiful book about what is required for there to be a universe such as ours, which we are able to to live in. And and that point in which there is is appears to be nothing, and then the universe begins. And then gravity. When 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 do we observe gravity, Brian?
5: Well, so gravity is one of those properties of the universe that um, we take as, what you might call an axiom. So there are there are if everything in nature were derivable, so you could somehow explain what where gravity comes from, then you would have a, you'd be able to derive the universe as it is. Right, so. So what our best model of gravity at the moment is Einstein's theory of general relativity, which says gravity is essentially, uh, going to Brian Greene's book, the curvature of the fabric of the universe. Um, so, so you can imagine, we call it space time, but you can imagine the universe is it's often referred to as a fabric. And uh, the presence of anything in that fabric, matter, energy, anything at all, curves it and distorts it. And what we see as the force of gravity, or feel as the force of gravity, is the response of everything else in the universe, including ourselves, to that curvature and distortion of the fabric of the universe itself, space-time. And at the, if you ask why, then our answer is at the moment, because that's the way that nature is. So we don't know what, whether space-time itself, whether this fabric, is... Uh, some kind of property that emerges from a deeper theory. There are people working on this. Uh, Sean Carroll's latest book, actually, which is a, a wonderful book. Um, which whose name I forgot. You, you'll remember it, Robin. What's it called? The latest. Oh, oh what the? Yeah. Uh, um, it's uh, oh man, it's a great Einstein quote about uh, something deep oh, hidden, um, something deeply hidden. Deeply hidden. Something deeply. Hidden. So in there, in the last chapter, there's a good description of, of what people, space and time. Time. Remember, when I say space-time, I'm talking about space and time merged together. So we're, we're saying, can you derive what time is and what space is and how they merge together in a deeper theory? There are people trying to do that from quantum theory. Uh, no consensus right at the beginning of that journey. So at the moment, the answer to that question, as with many things, like what is, what, what is the origin of matter you know we, we the, these kind of questions and um, ultimately there's a lot of we don't know that is how we it is an observation we make of nature and there is no deeper understanding of what those things are yet if ever and and that's that's the answer Thank you so much. We've
1: run out of time, and uh, I'll just mention you, yeah, Brian, should be back with us uh, on uh, on Tuesday morning at uh, ten a.m. Also with uh, David McCollumant and Beck Hill. And uh, we thank you so much, Helen. Thank you so much, Miranda. Thank you, Brian. Because I do not know you also yeah. had such thank a struggle but, with all of that. I
5: would have liked, would have liked to talk to you both, and we could have answered questions together. <laughs> Obviously, I'm useless, um, or, or some things useless in my technology, but it's sold now. Yeah. Well we
2: we're good? all yeah. we're all gonna be in self we're all gonna be at home for a long time, so there might be yeah. other opportunities Yeah,
5: <laughs> We'd all, all stay in contact and thank
1: you so much everyone who's 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 watched. Uh do remind you go to cosmic where you can find all the stuff that we've got coming up on the stay at home thing tomorrow night. Uh th- tomorrow night or tomorrow morning. I can't remember which. Actually, Josie Long is going to be presenting some of the things that would have been at the Melbourne Comedy Festival, which has obviously been cancelled uh, it's tomorrow night. I've just had a little signal on that. And uh also uh so go to cosmicshambles.com find out what we we're doing. Uh, as I said, anything, any money that we make from this is going to go to uh, some of the people that we know and some of the people who have got in contact with us who uh, are going to really struggle because they all of that, all of that mm-hmm. work has mm-hmm. dis- disappeared at the moment. And also to try and keep some of the venues going. And uh, we will keep you up to date with, with where that stuff is going. So if you can go to the tip thing, that is brilliant. Uh, on Cosmic Chambers as well, we have a new episode of Book Chambers up at the moment with the brilliant Tracy Thorne talking about many different things. I'll also just briefly mention... I'm sure everyone watching this is already being sensible, but really do take social distancing very, very seriously. I've been talking to nurses. I've been talking to doctors. I've been talking about their their worries uh, and their very, very big worries of what they're going to have to deal with and be kind to people. You know, this is the great Kurt Vonnegut line. uh, And it's so important, which is, you know, if you had one piece of advice for all the babies of the world that were going to grow up to be 100 years old, that is God damn it. You've got to be kind. Thank you so much for watching. And uh,
5: it's, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. But I love your headphones. You look like a kind of a, I don't know, like an agricultural cyberman or something. No, do you it's know a, what it is? Like cyberman, it works in the
2: fields.
5: They're my, my son's Minecraft headphones. They're my son's Minecraft headphones.
2: Excuses, so, <laughs> excuses. I'm not kidding. Like, no, okay.
1: I, I, do you know what? I've ne- in the partnership with Brian, I've never been the one for sartorial <laughs> elephants, not even
5: with headphones. See you all soon. <laughs>
0: Thanks very much for listening. Remember to go to cosmic shambles.com slash stay at home to tip uh, and all the profits from these shows. will be going to artists and performers and venues hit hardest by the current shutdown. Is that what it is? is that what we co- Let's call it. Let's call it that. And while you're there, check out upcoming shows. And if you'd like to support us direct at the cosmic shambles network, patreon.com slash book shambles is where you can go and do that.